Hello everybody and welcome to this, this BICOM briefing. Thank you all so much for joining on such short notice. I'm Samuel Nerding, I'm the Research Associate at BICOM and I'm delighted um, to be joined with our Director from Jerusalem, Richard Pater. I'm sure Richard is a familiar face to most of you. Um, he has spent over 15 years working alongside government officials, diplomats and journalists. And Richard joined BICOM from the Israeli Prime Minister's office, where he spearheaded the engagement with the foreign press. There's a lot to get through, Rich, so we should kind of just get straight to it. Um, just before we do, I'll just say it's the usual TNCs for Zoom webinars. So if you have a question, either type it in the Q&A function or just raise your hand and I'll unmute you so you can ask your question directly. I do encourage everyone to think of challenging questions. Uh, Richard is more than capable of answering them for you. Um, Rich, let's start with obviously last night and perhaps you can explain why negotiations went down to the wire. Sure, thanks Sam. And just to add, I know that we've received some questions uh, already from some people and we're going to try and integrate that as well. But as Sam said, please feel free to uh, send any more in. Um, so in terms of kind of why, why the negotiations went down to the wire, well, the, I mean, the, the first reason is that these are really, really complicated. And, and Yael appeared who was charged by the president with the mandate to form the government, entered into separate bilateral negotiations with each party. As it, as it resulted, came together as a package deal last night with, uh, with eight separate parties, but it meant that uh, it did the deal with seven distinct, uh, distinct parties. His original approach, it began with Naftali Bennett. He understood that was gonna be the, the, toughest, uh, the toughest nut to crack um, so, to, so to speak, because it was they were cr crossing the Rubicon in the sense of leaving the right wing camp that they have traditionally been affiliated with and coming over to form uh, to form some, something else. However, as a result of the violence over the last two or three two or two or three weeks, um, Bennett really didn't have his party um, with him at all. He turned around, and even a, even his faction of sevens was actually quite depleted. Um, so that was why at the beginning of the uh, of the violence two three weeks ago. He called off those talks because he just didn't have, so he didn't have the uh, the mandate within within his own constituency to continue. So what Lapid did instead was go back to his more trusted natural partners and built up first of all with Yisrael Beitenu and then Merit and then afterwards with uh, with Labour and Blue and White and put together these deals, making sure that each one would have kind of a, a top line senior portfolio for the party leader and enough to satisfy the demands of, of other other senior figures within within the party and so and so built it together um, why it went down so close to the wire again was, was largely because of uh, of bennett but also the uh, the the engagement with uh, mansour abbas and the uh, the united arab list party ram was also incredibly difficult to get them to get them there in that space both Ram and uh, and uh, and Yamina at the same time were being heavily courted by by uh, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu and with and with incentives and pressure to join their campaign, particularly on uh, Ayelet Shaked, who is the number two in Bennett's party, who is seen as particularly, although secular but right wing and susceptible to uh, kind of to joining rejoining the Likud, was seen to be her career path up until up until last night. Um, so that, that was particularly difficult. And she also was uh, maintaining insistence on being part of the, the Judges Selection Committee. The Judges Selection Committee, just as a little bit of background on that, is a committee of nine people chaired by the Justice Minister that includes one other member of the coalition, two members from the opposition, uh, 
uh, three members from the bar association and 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 uh, and three mem and two members from from existing uh, um, Supreme Court judges. Um, and the balance was that if you're going to have two from the opposition who are already being by dint of Netanyahu and his parties of the right wing already, then Merav Michaeli, the Labour Party, had already closed the deal to be part of that. They actually reopened that to allow some flexibility for Ayelet Shaked and. Uh, and uh, Merav Michaeli to, to share that role also in a rotation agreement. And then finally, as I said, with, uh, with uh, Mansour Abbas entering the deal also last night, and that famous picture that we've all seen of the, the three of them sitting together, which really is kind of an, an iconic mo moment within, within Israeli politics, and, and rightly so. He was also being courted. The same deals that he was, he was negotiating with, uh, with Lapid, was allegedly the same deals that better that Liebman, that sorry that Netanyahu was also trying to persuade him in and and uh, and, and and bring him in to a to, to the right wing bloc as well, despite him being of the uh, of the from the Islamic Party, and we can I'm sure explore that later. So broadly, it all came together. There was the deadline of midnight last night, and they managed to close it just around an hour or so before that deadline. Right. Why, um, why do you think Lapid has agreed, some even in Israel say maybe caved in to a, to a parity kind of government, given that he has 17 seats and a much larger voting bloc compared to Bennett's six seats, potentially even less, and a voting bloc around 12. So why has, why has Bennett kind of agreed to, to kind of those terms in a, in a parity government? So, I mean, Lapid has shown a great deal of, uh, of political um, acumen and, uh, and maturity in the way that he has dealt with this. He understood the, the kind of the, the broad numbers that you needed to get Bennett over the line um, to, to, to get him to, because, of the, because of, the, of the number crunch, to, to do this deal. And in order to do so, and in order to kind of to maintain that Gidon uh, Saar, the other right-wing party, would come in with him, they, they needed to offer something substantial, and that kind of in the local kind of uh, vocabulary is, is the essence of, a, of the rotation agreement. When you can't do it through your own party, you need to make this trade-off. And it was seen as kind of significantly um, uh, generous, there's no doubt about it, a seat of 17, 17 seats handing over to one which now has basically six mandates with it, was generous, but he understood there was no, there was no time to wait to, uh, to negotiate over if he would go first, he understood that he took the hit straight away, conceded against his uh, maybe his better judgment or his ego that to stand to stand aside and let Lapid uh, Lapid go first. I think we should also know that these two have a, a good history of working together, and I'd add Gidon Saar into that mix as well. They uh, they all served together in Netanyahu's government back in 2015. That back then the Lapid uh, the Lapid Bennett. Uh, Alliance was referred to as the bromance of Israeli Israeli politics. They are both of a, of a similar generation. Um, they both understand, kind of, I think, broadly speaking, the the the, the, di the diverse nature of Israeli society and the need for compromise and to work with people who are from different ideological camps in order to uh, in order to bring that through. And and just a final point that I think uh, Lapid was also uh, cognizant of the fact that government aside. The right wing clearly has a not a huge majority, but about a 66 majority overall, if you count the Likud and the other right wing parties. So one could argue that the will of the people and the way that it was presented within the Knesset was was reasonable for a right wing prime minister to take over, albeit that we now have, a, have the government presented to us, which is incredibly balanced across the political spectrum. 
you, you mentioned there the, um, the, the image of Lapid, Bennett and, and Abbas that came out last night and it, it was making the rounds this morning in the UK press. Perhaps you can just kind of explain the, the significance of, of Abbas agreeing to be part of a coalition government. And a question here which just came through is, when else has an Israeli government relied on an Arab party to, to provide its Knesset majority from day one? Okay, I'll ask the, answer the second part first. So this, is, this has never happened before. This is un, un, unprecedented for a coalition to be built with, a, with, an, with an Israeli Arab party on the inside. And that's really, really significant. Um, the only other real historical precedent was back in the Rabin government of the early 90s that had a majority without the Israeli Arab support. But during the, uh, as they came close to signing the peace, the, the, the peace treaty with the, uh, with the Palestinian Authority, the Declaration, the Declaration of Principles, um, Shas got uh, cold feet. The ultra-orthodox uh, Sephardic party, although there was a very significant ruling at the time by uh, Rabbi Ovadia, the spiritual leader, that said that it was uh, it was more holy to in, to save human life, one could give up land, and that's a very significant point of uh, of ultra-orthodox ruling with regard to the the the, the, the territories. But that that aside. Then the Israeli, the, the Rabin government relied for a short while with the support from the outside from some of the Arab parties. And that's really the only precedent, but it's nothing on the same scale and, uh, and caliber of the agreement that we have today. To understand kind of the build up to, uh, to, 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 uh, to Ram entering this government, there are a couple of factors that worth, worth uh, reminding ourselves. First of all, incredibly so, it was Netanyahu himself although a year and a half during the election of 2020 was, was absolutely kind of leading the delegitimization of the Israeli Arab parties, very soon found a modus operandi to work with them in the parliament. And there are at least three votes that I can think of, the election of the uh, state of Bundsman, um, the uh, voting against the opposition, where the opposition wanted to establish a commission of inquiries into the submarine uh, scandal that the Arabs, the, the Ram also voted with the Likud as a, as a, as a trade-off. And then finally bringing down the government as well when Bibi wanted to, to do that. He also relied on, on, on Ram support then. So there was a lot of understanding within the, the background in the Knesset that the Likud had already legitimized uh, Abbas as a partner. If you add from that during the campaign, Netanyahu went on his charm offensive. Um, um, Abu Yair, the father of, of Yair, is kind of how he presented himself to the, to the Arab public. Um, so that was a, a real sea change. But in parallel to this, to understand kind of the ideological roots and uh, development of Mansour Abbas, because this wouldn't have happened without him. He has shown incredible um, uh, political um, um, pragmatism. And again, perhaps mirroring Netanyahu in, other, in another sense, um, he, was, he took a very transactional approach. He understood that what suited, what suited his needs of his community was to improvements on the ground. And that recognized that the majority of Israeli Arabs, and we hope this is still the case, are looking for more integration into Israeli society, not less, not unlike the traditional position of other Israeli Arab parties that always kind of highlighted the Palestinian issue and put that on the, on the agenda. Mansour Abbas wanted to improve things for the Israeli Arab communities inside Israel. This is the creation of jobs, um, fighting against the crime and honor killings within those communities. Building, building infrastructure, bringing investment to those communities. And so the, uh, the, the, this, this experiment of whether it will really work 
will be will be tested of whether he can really bring those funds to the Israeli Arab communities and if he can really deliver deliver on those changes. Um, and the final point I'll make just on kind of the mindset of the Israeli Arabs is around the Abraham Accords that uh, that it was well understood inside kind of Jewish Israelis and they wanted to project this out to Israeli Arabs that they really can be a bridge in this partnership that they are the Arab the, the Arab-speaking population will have a natural affinity to the Gulf states, I mean, especially the Emirates and, uh, and Bahrain in, in particular, and that in terms of economic opportunities, it's, it's, it's really a fantastic chance for Israeli Arabs to engage with mainstream Israelis and be that bridge towards the Gulf as well. Right. Um, I have a question here which fits in with kind of um, Abbas's kind of priorities. Um, it's one issue which you didn't mention. It's the LGBT rights. Um, how much was that a problem for Ram in the context of negotiations? So this is very, really interesting. I think it's, I mean, before I answer it directly, it's more about the background of why the joint list split up. And it's again, it's about how Mansour Abbas looks at himself. He represents an, an Islamic party, which is, and again, we've we discussed this on an editorial issue of whether we should be calling them Islamist and, uh, and, or, is, or Islamic. And it is an important distinction but I think unlike the northern branch of the Islamic movement in Israel, which still is supportive of, uh, of, of uh, armed resistance, etc., the southern wind, which, uh, which Mansour Abbas represents, back in the mid-90s already rejected that approach. So I think personally that Islamic is more, is, is more, uh, is, is more an appropriate uh, framing of their party. But as you correctly point out, these, they rejected being part of the other Arabs' left-wing agenda. And that includes, I mean, by the way, this may not be so palatable for us or some, of, uh, some, some, some in the West, but they very much saw themselves Mod both modeling themselves on the Israeli ultra-Orthodox Jewish parties who serve their self-interest, but also aligned with their, with their interests as a religious party. So as a religious party, just like Orthodox Jews are formally against any form of uh, LGBTQ represent rep representation or, or, the, or the right. So similarly, Mansour Abbas also on that very kind of niche field of, uh, of, uh, of, of social policy also wanted to take a more strident approach um, and, and be conservative with a, with a, with a small C. Right. Um, so is it a done deal? Should we all be preparing for this new kind of change government or can BB or can someone else find a way to prevent it from happening in the next two weeks? So this is the key question that everyone is kind of asking themselves and, and, and looking at the, uh, the political map. Is it a done deal? It looks, it looks good. Um, I would say I describe it as being cautiously optimistic at this stage, but there are still there are still potential hurdles and uh, and and and, uh, and and problems on the road even in, in the next days days ahead. First and foremost is the is the issue that the right wing, especially the Likud party, are going to be putting enormous pressure on the backbencher uh, right wing MKs who have joined this coalition. Um, we've seen today that I mean you know the the Amina party started off with seven seats. They entered the deal last night with six after Amichai Shikli has officially joined the, uh, the, the Likud and opposition camps. And there's one more um, uh, Yamina MK who is, who's wobbling, um, a guy called Nir Orbach. And the Likud today, I mean, about now actually, have just announced, I have the privilege of seeing all the messages and internal messages that are being shared amongst the parties. The Likud are calling people to rally and support Nir Orbach by holding a rally outside his house this, this afternoon to show their support and to kind of make sure they can actually extract him from the uh, from the this 
coalition and bring him into the, uh, the, the, the right-wing opposition. They may try that with other MPs as well. Don't forget the New Hope Party is a split off from the liquid itself. There could be backbenchers there who maybe saw themselves as hoping to get a cabinet portfolio that could be persuaded to go back to the liquid. So that's the name of the game over the next few days. Um, there are two issues in terms of the parliamentary procedure. One is that they need to bring this government to a vote. Um, and, and, to, and to pass it, they don't need an they, they only need a, 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 a simple majority to pass that. So even if they lose one person, they can still pass it and win it theoretically 60 votes to 58 or something like that. Bear in mind that the joint list party, the other Arab party, are more likely to abstain. And again, the joint list themselves are a conglomeration of three separate parties. Um, the communists, uh, the, the, the pan-Arabist uh, nationalist uh, uh, Balad um, and, uh, and, and Tal party led by Ahmed Tibi. So those three factions within the joint list also may decide and determine independent policy when it comes to this vote. But that vote is, 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 is basically the most important vote to decide whether this government can be, can be sworn in. The second parallel approach, and the sequencing here is important, is switching and voting out the, uh, the Speaker of the House. It was initially thought that if they had a solid 61, then they would look to replace the Speaker first. And then when they had control of the legislative process, they could then expedite and, and go through with the swearing in of the government. It now appears, and again, this may, this may change, but it now appears because of what I mentioned before about the fragility of the Yamina party, that they will wait, they will lead, they will let the process run its natural course with a Likud Speaker of the House to first vote in the new government, and only then, when they have the majority, then change the speaker and take care of take care of the uh, of the um, the legislative branch of uh, of of proceedings. I wonder if we can talk a bit about kind of Bibin and his mindset and what he does now. So, do you think he will settle being head of the of the opposition? Um, and, and if he is, kind of what impact will that have on his trial and kind of a plea bargain kind of option? So it appears at the moment that yes, I mean, if this government does get formed, that Netanyahu will form, will become the, uh, the leader of the opposition. And he's expected to, to kind of, I'm sure, to give this government a, a hard time. And again, why I said earlier, it's important that everything that, that uh, Lapid and Bennett were prepared to offer Ram it's highly likely that Netanyahu would have made them exactly the same offer. So when he uses his rhetoric, which I'm sure he will, about accusing this government of being the most left-wing ever and, uh, and, and uh, accusing them of, uh, of uh, all sorts of uh, nasty innuendos of, of associating them kind of with the, uh, with the Arabs in a pejorative sense, it's worth bearing in mind that Netanyahu would have done exactly the same deal but he's just using this for kind of for political expediency to try and uh, to try and break up the government. Um, he 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 may. I mean, hopefully, this this government still may survive that despite the efforts of the uh, of the opposition. And then I think you've got a second question, which is how long the Likud will stay with Netanyahu as their leader. Um, and at the moment, I mean, historically, I mean, people may have heard me say this before: the Likud has shown incredible loyalty towards their leadership in the 40 plus years, close to 50 years that the Likud has been around, they've only had four leaders ever. Um, and that's uh, Sharon, Sham, uh, Begin, Shamir, and, uh, and, and, and Netanyahu. 
um, sorry, in the, in the other order, Begin, Begin, Shamir, Sharon, Netanyahu. So they've never shown any appetite to get rid of their leader. However, this is obviously a very extreme circumstance because the Likud, with 30 seats, like one in four Israeli voters, should have been part of any unity government. And it's only because of Netanyahu and his personal issues around the trial, which means he is unacceptable. So there may be, and there are certainly voices that are starting to be heard within the Likud, which will look to, uh, to a new set of leadership that could potentially join the government under a different set of leadership. Now, the challenge is, until Netanyahu makes a decision that he's had time and that he will, he will resign and pass on the leadership baton, it's quite unlikely that any of these would-be um, pretenders to the throne will want to challenge Netanyahu directly because the general thinking is, as I said, that they could have a small-c conservatism over their leadership. And the general thinking amongst the Likud supporters is still broadly behind uh, Netanyahu. So they're unlikely to face a, he's unlikely to face a challenge. The one option to preempt this Netanyahu tactic may be is to call early primaries, to call the bluff of people that are, uh, are whispering and suggesting behind the scenes that they would challenge him and to call them out and see if they actually do, do run a campaign. And that will obviously be fascinating to see if any of them do, do take the bait and, uh, and challenge Netanyahu. But I would remind you as well that it was just a year and a half ago, roughly, when um, Gidon Saar, who was part of the Likud, he challenged Netanyahu and didn't do, didn't do so well. He got late. Uh, Netanyahu got around 70% support as opposed to about 25, I think, of, uh, of, of Gidon Saar. So that same fate could, could, could lead to anyone else. Challenges like Yuli Edelstein, the former Speaker of the House, um, Israel Katz, who's a veteran Likud minister, um, has his own strong support base with, amongst the grassroots, but not sure it's enough to, uh, um, to, to rival Netanyahu. And finally, Neil Barkat, who was kind of overlooked for cabinet positions in the last government, the former mayor of Jerusalem, um, who has invested a great deal of his own personal fortune to, uh, to start running campaigns and kind of test the waters for a, for a leadership run. So they're the expected candidates. But at the moment, I don't see anyone in the short term directly challenging Netanyahu. What about the, um, the ultra-Orthodox parties? Um, they've been in power, say, under, uh, with Bibi for, for six, seven years now. Um, they're obviously worried about Abdul Lieberman being or having a lot of power in the finance ministry. Um, how much weight do you attach to them maybe joining the government in six months, two years' time? I mean, they, they may well want to. I mean, listen, they could, as I said, the, the Israeli Arab parties, or, or Ram in particular, models themselves on the Haredi version of how do you kind of detach yourselves from, uh, from regular mainstream politics and worry just about your, your, own, uh, your own constituency. Um, then, so the, in, in that context, the ultra-Orthodox parties are incredibly worried that they will have some of their, their funding cut off, especially from, uh, from the support for large families, um, for the support of the uh, yeshiva students that don't, uh, that, that don't work. Um, and the other big challenge, which I don't think us as perhaps as, as secular Israelis fully recognize and appreciate is the, the, the Yeshatid demand to bring in um, sec, secular curriculum into the, uh, the religious seminaries, into the yeshivot. Because for most of us, that seems like common sense and obvious, and especially with such a growing young population, if you want them to be um, 
capable and 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 responsible members of the uh, of of the adult population they need to have the basic training to be able to to to, to earn their money and, and enter the enter the workforce but the point that that misses is that the ultra orthodox genuinely feel that their lifestyle is is being threatened that they feel the same way that uh, i mean it sounds like a a gross exaggeration but in the same way they were persecuted under various european regimes in the past when they lived in the diaspora that challenged their way of life so that's the same framing that they're worried about a a secular government without their involvement would would challenge their their, their core existence here basically and that by insisting that their institute their education institutions um make such a huge reform by teaching maths and english and sciences etc that they will be exposing their children to, to such unwanted external um non non-religious based uh, material but that's a real threat to their lifestyle and i think there's a, a, a there's a balancing act here to be to be struck and by the way i think lapid did this to his credit during the campaign as well it would have been very easy to clip a coupon and to and to make the ultra orthodox the enemy of the of 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 non haredi uh, is Israelis and to highlight the issue of their, their lack of service in the army and, the, and, the, and their lack of education and the kind of the leeching off the states, um, so, so to speak, in their, in their terminology. But Lapid, who didn't do that, it would have been easy, but he definitely didn't do that to, to remain statesmanlike and above that. So it'll be a balancing act of how much he wants to push these reforms through so quickly and how much he's able to, to galvanize and engage, maybe with non-political leaders within the ultra-Orthodox world of which they can establish a dialogue with them. Fascinating. Um, let's talk about this new kind of new coalition government in waiting. I have a question here about potential Prime Minister Naftali Bennett. To what extent is the international image of Bennett different to the domestic Israeli image of Bennett? Uh, if the image of him internationally is more negative than the domestic image, does that, would you think that that is a problem? Or vice versa, do you think this could be of, of benefit? Um, it's a good question because I think that's something definitely that we've noticed within the, the uh, international coverage of this government formation that, uh, that Bennett is often referred to as uh, ultra right or extreme right etc and that's not I mean no surprise that's not the perception here in Israel I mean of course he is of the right wing but he actually did a lot within his own political framing over this kind of the last three elections that we've had in, in four elections in such short um, succession to basically pull himself away from the uh, from the, the authority of the, of the rabbis and to be seen as kind of the, the political pet of the, of the settler rabbis, for example, that do wield sometimes disproportionate influence. Um, Bennett's, Bennett's perception here in Israel is very different. First of all, he lives in Ranana, which people know is kind of an extended suburb of greater, greater Tel Aviv. Um, he's, not a, he's not a settler, even though he did in his early career um, when he left, he's a, he was a successful businessman that made an exit and made a made a great deal of money um, in the in the high tech startup. And then, when he was looking for a more meaningful political or activist lifestyle, he was he was recruited by the Yesha, the Settlers Council, to serve as their leader. And so that's probably where it comes from. But he wears a very small kippah. By the way, the first Israeli prime minister ever to be to be an Orthodox Jew and to wear a to wear a kippah. On a, on a permanent basis so this is this is interesting and this is something that is that is different and uh, and and unique but generally in israel his image is, is of a, a high-tech guy come good um he had a very credible career in the uh, in the in the army um serving in the maglan unit one of the uh, elite uh, command 
commando units. So that's kind of where his, his framing is here and less emphasis on kind of the, 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 the settler um, baggage perhaps that he still carries with him to an extent. And that's not to say that he is, of course he is a, a bona fide right wing and his plan, if he was ever to kind of have an, a majority of his party, which were, is not going to happen, he would favour um, annexing parts of the West Bank and uh, has a kind of a, a specific approach to there. But in the context of this government, and we can explore this this more, that's that, that's just not going to happen because there's clearly no majority in the current uh, formation of this government of change to push through such right-wing policies of, uh, of annexation. But similarly, there is no agenda really. I mean, if, we, if you want to go the other side, the hopes of the Labour Party or merits of entering into uh, negotiations and withdrawing Israeli presence from the part of the West Bank, that's also unlikely to happen. So we're on that issue, we're much more likely to see status quo being maintained. I have a question here about um, kind of what role or kind of how much power do you think Moretz will have in the regional cooperation ministry? But perhaps you can just talk more in general in terms of all the ministries and the ministers. How much autonomy do you think they'll have under this government? Um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a difficult question to answer because we don't yet, we don't yet know. I mean, I think in broad, in broad scope, this government's priority will be to avoid, as I said, anything ideological, anything that is going to kind of make it clear a clear um, tension and fractures within the within the government governing coalition. So they're going to focus on a very um, domestic orientated uh, approach and emphasis on passing a budget, which because of the uh, political chaos we've had over two years, hasn't been passed for over two years in the context of, uh, of reinvigorating and uh, revitalizing the economy post coronavirus and kind of creating jobs, large infrastructure projects, we, by the way, should caution all this that we haven't yet seen the official government guidelines. They're usually presented just before the government comes to the to to to, uh, to the vote in the in the Knesset. But what we have seen is what I mentioned at the beginning: some of these individual contracts between Yeshatid and the other parties. And so there we have an idea of a, a commitment to make two huge building projects, two new hospitals, one in the north, one in the south. Um, to, to create a, uh, a, a fast train, train, train line to connect uh, more, of the, uh, more, more of the country and, uh, and make it easier to, 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 to commute. So these type of things will be, will be the priority. Um, in terms of, of merit and the, and the regional cooperation, and again, if we, if, if we understand it to be correct from what the Israeli media is reporting, um, Isawi Frej, who is an, an Israeli Arab member of the Meret party, is likely to be a minister in that portfolio. And that very much talks to, to what I said earlier about the context of the, uh, of the Abraham Accords, that if you have a Meret Israeli Arab um, minister who is leading that engagement, who can perhaps be part of uh, repairing some of the relationship with the Jordanians, maybe even reaching out. We have Israel has fantastic security cooperation with Egypt, for example, um, as can be seen in the latest uh, ceasefire arrangements. But in, a, in, in civil society, that's been lacking. And some people have suggested there's opportunities in the, in the context of Israel's normalization with the Emirates and with the Bahrain that they could reinvigorate the relationship with the Jordanians and the Egyptians and try and build some more project, people-to-people projects, G to G governments, government uh, projects as well. And so there's a real opportunity to uh, to reach out. And as I said, the Abraham Accords was voted by a un almost unanimous. Only the Israeli Arab parties at the time, the joint list, were the only faction to vote against 
the ratification in the Knesset. It's received the support of every other party from hard left to hard right. And so it's a, it's a deeply consensual issue and, and, and it could be a fantastic opportunity to advance that within this new government. Great. I have another question here from the audience. Um, what could be the biggest issue that could collapse this coalition? For example, renewed violence with Hamas or tensions on Temple Mount? Listen, it's, it, there, there's no shortage of, of problems, both in terms of the, of the security front, whether it be Jerusalem or, God forbid, more uh, inter, in, in, intersectional um, rioting and violence within, within Israeli society that can, that can tear at the fabric um, of, this, of this government. And there also can be kind of crises that we haven't even thought of um, and, until now, which could be, I mean, on issues of, of, of religion and state. I mean, there, it, we don't lack kind of issues that uh, the people disagree and diversity. So any of these things could potentially um, break down the government. But one, when I say I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic is because the tone seems different and the language primarily being set by both Lapid and Bennett and then echoed by the other parties as well seems to reflect a maturity and understanding that none of this is ideal, that everyone needs to make, to make, to make compromises and to, and to give up a little bit of something for the uh, for the greater good, and so one the hope is that it's in that spirit that uh, that these government will be kind of be formed and to continue. I mean, just as a at a final point on that, we saw two nights ago when they were kind of ending the coalitions, all the party leaders came together for a meeting. And if you'd have told me or anyone a year ago that Mansour Abbas would be sitting in a room with Avigdor Lieberman and uh, Naftali Bennett and agreeing with them the the, the the guidelines and framework of a government. I mean, no one would have believed that. This is, this is fantasy, fantasy politics. So I really would kind of emphasize that point that this is something we've never seen before and, and absolutely should be encouraged and supported. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit and ask you how long you think the coalition can last. Okay. Um, well, I, again, Judging by both all the problems that they that they have, but but balancing that with the goodwill and especially the necessity of passing a budget, I'd be confident that this government will last a year. Now that doesn't sound like much in terms of kind of the the range of normal politics, but to allow them to stabilise, to kind of to take out some of the the sting and the and the tension within Israeli society, which is still bubbling a little bit after the violence that we saw um, at the end of at the end of last month. I'd be confident that it would last. It would last at least a year. There are obvious reasons why all the sides would have an interest in prolonging it further. I mean, the left-wing parties have never have not been in a government for uh, over two decades. They should be kind of encouraged to to get that ministerial responsibility to show in their areas that they can deliver because that will be important to to sell it the next day. Um, similarly, the Israeli the, the Ram party that got through on four seats very close to the electoral threshold, is unlikely to want to go to next elections. And, and, and the right-wing parties as well will need to show achievements to their own constituency, because if, they, if it falls in under a year, they'll just be, be, be accused of having achieved, achieved nothing and of having sold out their ideology and don't face their very, a, a very optimistic uh, outlook when they next go to their, to their constituency for elections. So you can argue that it's in lots of sides' interest. And obviously, Lapid, by doing this deal, and, and waiting himself at the back end, that it's not going to be until August 2023 when he finally gets into the Prime Minister's office. He has a clear incentive to make this government last for that duration and to, and, and to see it through. So that's, again, a, an, an optimistic take. Um, 
these governments, I mean, although it's signed for four years, it's almost almost unheard of for an Israeli government, let alone one so diverse, to last the full length of time. But if it can get over a year, and with each kind of passing week and month, more trust and confidence is built up, and interministerial cooperation develops and shared projects, then, then, then maybe it can last two or two or three years plus, and it can really go down as a government that can achieve things. But we are getting a little ahead of ourselves. Absolutely. Uh, I have a question here on your new president. Um, obviously, yesterday was also the election for, for the new president, in which um, Isaac Herzog will, will go in in July. Does the election of Bougie Herzog as the next, as the next prime minister make a political or atmospheric difference? Um, I'm not sure is the honest answer. We'll have to wait and see. I mean, bear in mind, he's following at least a short term, a track record that uh, two presidents ago, it was the, the legendary Shimon Peres that, uh, that kind of became the, uh, the father figure of the state. And although he was very much identified with the left wing when he was a frontline politician, managed to, uh, to, to shape his image and uh, by acts and uh, words and deeds kind of represent the whole of the country. And similarly, um, Ruby Rivlin, when he was elected, came clearly from the other camp, from a right-wing ideological Jabotinsky's camp, but made every effort also to represent the whole of Israeli society and did important outreach work with all sectors of, uh, of society. So I think there is, a, there is confidence that, uh, that uh, Isaac Herzog will continue that tradition and be the president of anyone, everyone. And that's also kind of what he said in his opening statement yesterday. Um, he brings with him kind of a political acumen, a, a vast amount of experience, diplomatic skills, um, similar, perhaps in that sense, more similar to Shimon Peres, but maybe, maybe he, he will be deployed more than Rivlin was in terms of engaging with, uh, with international community and with foreign governments, that he has a, a skill set which is very, very suited to that, as well as kind of his role of, of, of uh, trying to build the rifts within, it, with, within Israeli society. So I think it bodes well, but I think he has a good uh, template to, uh, to, work, to work from and will continue in that vein. Great. I have two questions here back on domestic kind of Israeli politics. I'll start with Bennett. Um, obviously, Bennett is the son of Americans. Do you think this will help him in building relations, not only with the White House and Congress, but also with the US diaspora and American public in general? Um, interesting. I, I'm not sure that the, uh, I mean, listen, it will, for some Israelis that put a lot of stock when Netanyahu goes to America and speaks in flawless English, that kind of meets with approval from, uh, from certain sectors within uh, the Israeli, Israeli society. And Bennett, of course, will be able to, to kind of to copy that model and, uh, and, and speak in English. I mean, it was even reported here that when, when, when Bennett and, uh, and Bibi had their, had their private negotiations, that they were actually doing it in English. Um, which is which is also a fascinating insight of how the two of them um, speak uh, and relate and relate to each other. Um, but beyond kind of the ease in, in language, I don't think that's kind of a, a, a necessarily a determining factor. Um, there there is a lot to be done on on rebuilding trust and faith within the diaspora community, and certainly issues around kind of the uh, the parameters of prayer at the Kotel. Um, at the Western Wall have been a big issue for American Jewry that, uh, that Netanyahu hasn't been so attentive towards. Um, it's, that's a difficult question for Bennett as well, because he comes from a similar, a similar perspective, at least as, as Netanyahu's supporters, of, of supporting the status quo and also the sensitivities that just like every other country of the, uh, of the, 
the Vatican is run is run by the, the Catholic Church and the Church of England sim similarly, so that if the Israeli state official state religion is is that of Orthodox Judaism and the Western world is treated as a uh, as a synagogue framework, then then Orthodox synagogue arrives. Although there have been obviously both, uh, this is somewhere where Herzl could step in as well. Um, his predecessor, Sharansky at the Jewish Agency was important in formulating a compromise and opening up a third prayer area for egalitarian prayer. So there may be more sensitivity from this government to advance some of those compromise ideas um, and also kind of to relate and understand to listen more to the, to the needs of the, of the diaspora. Um, so I think also within this, the, whoever serves as Minister of Diaspora will also have an important role to start that conversation again and to, uh, to try and rebuild some of that trust. Absolutely. The, the other question is about the, the other Arab parties. So we've mentioned Mansour Abbas, but what about you know, the other Arab parties, the joint list? Why aren't they jumping at this chance to have some say in their future? Also a very, very good question. Um, I mean, essentially they represent, as I said, kind of within the joint list, six, a six member faction has three separate factions within that, all who have their own ideological bent. Um, people may have heard that Bicon ran, a, leading up to the election, we ran a series of, of podcasts interviewing a candidate from almost all the major parties. And when I spoke to the representative of Khadash, which is the, uh, the communist faction within the joint list, and I asked her, um, uh, Aida Suleiman, if kind of if communism was still a relevant uh, ideology um, in 2021 Israel, she pushed back and said defiantly, absolutely, that kind of her communist identity is core to her belief. Um, and so whilst you still have that aspect and layered upon that within the other factions, as I said, is kind of a, a harder line, um, Palestinian nationalism and even pan-Arabism as well, um, that have traditionally promoted the Palestinian issue beyond the kind of this distinction that I already mentioned with Abbas, it's difficult for them to see them crossing over and sitting part of this government. It was far more, I mean, uh, uh, Ayman Oda, the head of the joint list, who's also part of the, the communist faction, he did some important work over the last two or three years since he became par party leader of building bridges with the Israeli left. But that was, the, that's the, that was the, the important point to emphasize. He understood that the Israeli left were his partners, but weren't interested in the, uh, in the center or the right. So in that same sense, it seems a, a bridge too far for them to join this government. And by the way, there will be pushback on the other side as well because of their staunch uh, pro-Palestinian approach. It's unlikely that a Victor Lieberman or Gidon Saar would find it palatable or acceptable to be sitting in the same government as, uh, as kind of a staunch Palestinian nationalists. Um, one can only hope that uh, the success of Mansour Abbas will be the success of the wider Israeli Arab public. And obviously Mansour Abbas has a vested interest to present those successes. So when it comes to the next election and he again fights in that, in that space directly against the joint list, that he can bring some real achievements and, uh, and be a direct competitor to, that, uh, to the other Arab party. Right, I have a question here um, about Israel's relations with the outside world. Um, could you say something about the new government's relationship with the European Union? Relations have been tense under Netanyahu. Do you think that will change? I mean, the, the honest answer is we don't know. Um, it, it'll, be, it'll be very interesting to see those initial dialogues. I mean, listen, beyond kind of the, uh, the political tension that Netanyahu government perhaps had with the EU and, and certainly the, the overall positioning of, uh, 
of, of the Netanyahu government was always to put a better emphasis on bilateral relations with individual European states and thought that the, the framing and mechanism of the EU was, a, was, was often a problematic counterbalance to kind of, a, this is a crude, a crude definition, but kind of the US being pro-Israel, that the, Europe, the EU felt they needed to balance that and be, and be more pro-Palestinian. That was at least the perception within the, uh, the, outgoing, the outgoing government and then Netanyahu's time. It will be interesting to see whether, again, they, they take a similar approach and emphasize the bilateral nations with European countries. And again, post-conflict over the last couple of weeks, we've seen a whole slew of European leaders, um, the British Foreign Secretary, um, the, the German, the, Austra the, the Austrian, other Central European countries coming to visit and to either show kind of outright solidarity or at least some understanding and support for Israel and their, their right to defense, it, et cetera. So I think that's kind of more likely to be the, the, the continued approach, that it's more productive to work with individual countries and advance economic interests and diplomatic and uh, political interests. But I wouldn't rule out kind of this, this government, again, with Lapid as foreign minister, the tone will change and, and the kind of the, uh, the, 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 the less abrasive and, and more kind of uh, collegial and collaborative approach um, may well bear fruit and may well be reciprocated on the other side. And so we could see a dawning of a, or a blossoming of a relationship, even with organizations that have traditionally been less, less friendly towards previous Israeli governments. And, and what about security policy, Rich? Do you see more continuity um, with, this, with this new government than change? Because obviously Syrian policy, for example, has kind of had a wide kind of consensus support in Israel. So do you see this government staying with that and also with Iran and the nuclear deal? Yeah, I think very much so. I think both in terms of kind of, we've discussed already that, that they're pursuing the Abraham Accords, strengthening them, enriching them, also looking to widen the family of nations within the Abraham Accords. We can speculate on other countries that may or may not join, but that will certainly be a priority for this, for, for this government to try and expand those relationships. And at the same time, I do agree that there is a, a consensus approach, uh, Bamam, the, uh, the, the, the campaign between the wars of against Iranian entrenchment, particularly in, in Syria, is a consensus issue. Um, com combating it, um, Iran and their nuclear campaign I think it's somewhere in between. It's, it's mostly a consensus issue when it comes to um, operations which have been, uh, uh, according to foreign sources, um, identified with, it, with, with, the, with the Israeli government and the Israeli uh, security establishment engagement. But again, I think when it comes to the Vienna process and the, the US return to the JCPOA, we've already seen a different language from the Biden administration as well that has, that has been, been sure to reassure Israel that it will be kept in the loop, that they will kind of continue to share intelligence and, uh, and, and the picture from within. So I think you can look for also enhanced cooperation with the EU, with the US, with the E3 as well, of which the UK is an important, important member, to keep up that dialogue, despite the fact that the principle hasn't changed, that there is a lot of concern within this government as well about exactly what it means um, for the US to return to the, uh, to the, to the Iran Iranian agreement um, and, uh, and the potential in the, in the medium term for Iran achieving nuclear weapons. That will, be, that, that will be part of a more diplomatic conversation whilst reaching understandings with the US as to the limits of where Israel will employ um, kinetic power as well. You probably asked this question back at the start of the briefing, but um, one question here is how can Netanyahu derail this, this new government? Is it, is it mainly defectors that he has to kind of try and win over? 
I mean, bottom line, yes, yes, it's, it, it's effectively out of his hands now, um, but he will do all he, all he can to put pressure on the, uh, as I said, on the right wing, uh, on the right wing back benches primarily from within the Amina party, but don't rule out, as I said, going back to the former Likudniks within, uh, within, within New Hope or trying to peel off, trying everyone basically they can to try and, uh, to try and break down uh, this deal. That's basically their, 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 their main game, but expect that to kind of to be enforced both across social media, both in terms of kind of practical protesting outside people's houses, like we've seen over the last two or, two or three weeks. All of that pressure is liable uh, to continue and even be intensified. Um, back to kind of back to policy um, possibilities with, with this government. I have another question here: Is um, is there any possibility of the new coalition considering a range of alternatives in respect to the two-state scenario? So I, I, I kind of answered that before when I said that I don't expect because of the the, the broad. Um, range of views on this subject within the coalition. I don't expect um, I don't expect them to come up with any with, with any kind of a coherent policy which can unite this coalition and deliver it forward. However, the caveat to that is how much the US want to get um, engaged and involved in this, because the old cliche when it comes to the prime minister of what you see from here is not what you see from there. I when when Bennett finds himself in the prime minister's seat, he gets exposed to new. Uh, intel that he's never been he's never seen before and has these conversations with other world leaders and seems to understand where the where, where, where the power where the power lies across the uh, across the world with regard to this issue it's not impossible that he could change his mind by the way this is part of uh, the Likud's campaigning at the moment they picked up a quote from someone from the merits party saying that maybe Bennett will change his mind on this issue and so they could have hold this up as a uh, as a as, as a uh, as a red flag as a gotcha moment of saying look See, they're already planning it and, and it could and it could change but i think that we should also bear in mind that there'll be a more of a sophisticated approach to the palestinian issue and i mean that they'll make the distinction between three things between any chance of uh, real political um, negotiations and uh, kind of top level um, diplomacy with the palestinian authority which i think by the way under the current leadership in fatah is also going to be very difficult. So I don't see necessarily so much progress there. But on two other tracks, there could be. One is in terms of uh, incremental kind of improvements, um, what used to be referred to as, uh, as um, um, goodwill measures um, on the ground, um, kind of opening up more employment opportunities for, for, for Palestinians, helping issues of, uh, of, of movement and access. Um, and so there could, be, there could be a willingness there to move more and kind of to help the Palestinian economy. And I think the other area which is clear, there will be a consensus because even Netanyahu is showing this in these days, there is an understanding to work alongside the international community led by Egypt and the US to start to rehabilitate Gaza after the, uh, the, the, the violence and destruction that was, uh, that was caused over the, last, over the last three weeks. And I think on that level, in terms of uh, trying to find an appropriate kind of mechanism to monitor what goes in. Again, this has always been the problem over the last decade and a half with Hamas. How do you help the population of Gaza without Hamas being empowered and being able to get any, any derivative benefits from it? Um, so that, that they, I expect this government to be more open-minded and prepared to kind of to, to, to be, uh, to try and accommodate the international community when it comes to the rehabilitation inside Gaza. Right. Um, well, Richard, that's that's we've kind of out of the questions from the audience and from myself. But um, thank you so much for that really comprehensive overview. 
I hope it's been very beneficial for everyone who's joined us. And um, yep, yeah, and we'll hopefully see you next time for our next webinar. But Richard, for now, thank you so much. Thank you everyone for joining and um, take care. Thanks, Sam. Thank you all for, for joining us.